I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season nine of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and Man, do we have a great show for you this week. My guest is Coach Elliot McDermott from the Kansas City area. And Elliot last came on the podcast in December of 2015, which is crazy. I went back to listen to our last show and could not believe when I saw the date on it. Um, There will be a link to that last podcast in the show notes on parentingaces.com. So please, please, please be sure and check that out. He was incredible in that first episode, and if it's possible, even more incredible in the one you're getting ready to hear. So I'm excited to share Elliot and his knowledge with all of you. I wanted to just throw out there, if you haven't checked out my new live stream show with Dewey Evans that happens every Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, on the Parenting Aces YouTube channel. It's called Tennis Takeaways with Lisa and Dewey. I hope you will check that out. We go live for about 20 minutes every Wednesday morning and talk about a variety of topics having to do with junior tennis and college tennis and development and all sorts of stuff. Dewey is based in Austin, Texas, and he and I have known each other kind of through the digital world um, for many, many years now. And he has so much knowledge and experience to share. And I just, I value my Wednesday morning time with him so much. The show, like I said, goes live on Wednesday mornings, but it's also available on demand anytime on our YouTube channel. And there's actually a little place to click at parentingaces.com on the right side of every page to listen to the newest episode. So hope you'll check that out. Now, I want you to sit back and relax and get ready for a fantastic conversation with Coach Elliot McDermott. Elliot McDermott, what a pleasure to finally get you back on the podcast. Thanks, Lisa. It's really good to be here. I can't believe it's been so long. I mean, it's crazy, right? The the last time we chatted was December of 2015. I just went back and re-listened and looked at the date. Um, I know a lot has changed in my life since then. I'm sure even more has changed in your life on and off the court. I would love for you to kind of bring us up to speed on what's going on with Kansas City United Tennis. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, things um, are just, uh, they're fine every day, but um, it's definitely been different kind of wearing two hats with um, trying to continue to be um, what I love to be, which is a junior development coach and helping kids um, reach their goals of of playing college tennis and try and guide them through that process. And and on the other hand, with the other hat, um, trying to be the boss and a club owner of a a big club here at the Overland Park Racquet Club. you know, spending 30 some hours on the court still and getting out and traveling to tournaments and then doing all that needs to be done to make sure the club is running and taking care of all the adults and, and the staff and, and whatnot is, uh, has been a lot and certainly not complaining, but, um, 
but it's definitely been um, a fun challenge and and a, a crazy few years. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I mean, looking at the list of graduates that have gone on to play college tennis from your program, it's, you know, it's so obvious where your passion lies and just the amount of success you've had coaching these kids to be ready to play college tennis, I think is such a testament to you and your program. So congratulations on that. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't taken stock on it until um, you and I had talked about coming back on the show. And so I, I went back and I, you know, I um, recounted all the numbers. And, and then I talked to my business partner for forever since we founded Case United was, uh, you know, Eric Rand. And we were talking about, gosh, you know, out of those 81 kids since 2008 that have gone on to play college tennis, 51 of those 81 went and played D1 tennis and the other 30 and a growing number actually have been choosing division three and, and some portion of D2 and NAIA. So you just made my heart so happy. You have no idea. (laughs) Well, you know, just even in this last year's graduating class, you know, we had um, a girl, Gabby Lee that chose to go to Claremont McKenna instead of a couple of full ride D1 offers. Um, And, you know, and she's, she's chosen that for, you know, same reason why, um, you know, Teddy Fitzgibbons back in the day chose to go to Middlebury. You know, they just want that balance um, as opposed to, you know, everything that comes with being uh, a division one player. Cause we had a set of twin girls, the Cuckleman twins that this year they went and played at Nebraska and are playing in the big 10. And that's such an all encompassing thing, but each kid's different. And, you know, that's just part of the process is kind of figuring out what they want out of that, out of that four year experience and, and that experience and what they want, I think is definitely changed a lot, even since the last time you and I talked. Well, and I was getting ready to mention that. So the last time we talked, we talked about what playing college tennis does for these kids long term, you know, not just the tennis piece of it, but the the life skills that they gain and and the job opportunities and all of that. And what I think is so interesting is now I think more and more families and more and more coaches are understanding that the division one route isn't the only route and it's oftentimes not the best route for a kid. Sometimes it is, but there are so many other options out there that offer the exact same life lessons and job opportunities and, and skill building that D one does without the pressure of division one. And so I think, you know, it's it's really cool to me to hear you say that and, you know, talk about the numbers of kids that are going outside of D1 now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I think that that experience and, and and knowing exactly what you want out of it, you know, we we tell kids now, if you say that you want to go division one, you're saying that you want that to be your entire college experience and you absolutely love tennis and that that is all that you want to do. And I think that to most of them is when they first start thinking about, well, gosh, is that really all that I want to do? Or do I want to be able to study abroad and do 
I want to be able to, you know, not have to practice, you know, at the end of November when, you know, we've got finals coming up in two weeks. So, I mean, I think, I think that's definitely shifted um, a lot since I, since I've been in the business and, um, and we're finding that those experiences that they, that those kids are having um, are just as fulfilling, like you said, if not more so um, than the division one route for sure. Yeah. And I mean, what's so cool is whether it's division one or whether it's NAIA or junior college or whatever, being able to put on your resume that you played collegiate varsity tennis carries the weight. It doesn't matter which division it is. It's the fact that you made that commitment to not only your studies, but also to your sport that potential employers love. I mean, they just eat that up. And I've talked about this before, but my goodness, when my son was interviewing after he graduated from San Jose State, you know, he would spend five minutes in the interview talking about his school and, you know, his goals and dreams for a job. And then the other 55 minutes of the interview would be spent talking about his college tennis experience. Right. So, I mean, people just, they love collegiate athletes. And so anyway, but that we're off on a tangent. I want to bring us back to the, to the crux of this week's conversation because it's important and I want to make sure we have enough time. And that is, looking at what's happening in tennis as it relates to social media and the internet and how tennis coaching and tennis parenting is kind of challenged by all of these things happening in the world right now. So you have some pretty clear um, ideas and some, some advice and, and some guidelines to share. And so I want to give you that opportunity to do that, Elliot. Sure. Well, Lisa, when I when I thought about giving you a call, um, it, the the impetus for that was really um, a realization of looking at social media as a whole and how it's really affected the game of tennis in a lot of good ways and also ways that I don't think have been that been that uh, positive. And and I guess. What I what I see happening, and I think what's very difficult for for parents to be able to decipher, you take for example a parent of say a 14 year old kid, who that's their only kid that's played tennis, you know they're really looking to professional experts, professional coaches for advice on you know what the best route to go is in terms of. Um, maximizing that player development process between where they are and when they get into that college tennis recruiting process. And I think that, I think if, if I were in their shoes, um, that would be a very difficult, um, you know, path to navigate. But one of the first places that I would turn naturally would be the social media or the, the online world. And, you know, start to, um, you know, start to see what people are saying about, um, about how to do this. And, you know, that's a scary thing. Now, it's also a good thing, because I think that all that information that the access to information about what it means to, you know, hit the ball correctly, or what it looks like in slow motion for, you know, Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal to hit the ball, 
I think all of that has really helped tennis. And I think that's reflected in the skill level of today's player. I mean, I think 12-year-old kids today, whether it's because of the rogie pathway or because of coach education or parents understanding what it what it looks like to to hit the ball correctly and to play correctly, there are 12-year-olds today that are so much more well-rounded as players than they were, um, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. So I think there are a lot of positives um, uh, to social media and to the internet in general with the access to information. Right, right. But the problem is, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that the, you know, the negative side to it is then there's a lot of disinformation out there. And I think it's very difficult to decipher what's, um, what's good advice and what's not good advice. And it's very easy, especially on Instagram or Facebook or whatnot. It's very easy to offer up a bunch of information and act, act like you know what you're talking about without really having to back up that information with, um, or that advice, you know, with, um, uh, evidence as to how that, how that's been, you know, a proven best practice, um, in that regard. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is, there's a lot of bad information out there. Let's face it. I mean, just flat out bad. And then, there's a lot of confusing information out there. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'll, let me give you one example. So if you, if you think about tennis and how it's changed since the early seventies, you know, that's when we started playing, at least in the United States on concrete courts. Tell me one other sport that's played any sport that's played on a concrete surface. Can you think yeah. of one? I mean, outdoor basketball, pickup basketball. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, handball, other than, I guess. Other yeah. than road, road running, right. Which yeah. is a, a straightforward, it's not a dynamic sport, but other than that, there's no other sport that's played on concrete. And yet when you go online and look at videos about how to do, you know, say speed and agility training or any kind of plyometric training for tennis, you see a lot of people doing demos of those things on a, on hard tennis court, which could not be a worse thing that you could do for your junior tennis player going through all of the changes that they're going through the physicality of what they're doing to augment what they're doing on the tennis court, which they have to do unless you have just easy access to a clay or grass court you're going to be pounding away on that hard court no matter what. So the last thing that you want to be doing is then adding to that pounding by having kids doing a bunch of jumping, changing directions, all of those things on a concrete court. And yet those things are, are everywhere on social media. So, you know, that's just one, that's just one example and nobody would know that, right? I mean, you would just look at a drill that, you know, they're jumping over this pylon, they're doing, you know, you're doing these ladder cone, what, whatever, 
and you go, oh, wow, that looks great. Well, maybe my kid should be doing that. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll show that to my coach and then maybe they'll do that. And, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, when you, when you stop and think about the, you know, the legitimacy of that, you don't, you don't really question, well, yeah, okay, that's on a hardcore. Why isn't that done being, why isn't that being done on, you know, a gym floor, carpet, rubber, AstroTurf, you know, something like that. So I think, you know, we could get into the weeds on, you know, all the drills that people do. I think any drill where somebody hits tennis ball is a good drill, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not here to, to argue that, but I think that, I think that we have a problem in tennis. I think we might've talked about this the last time too. We have a problem in tennis with self-professed experts. And it's a very difficult sport to um, regulate who really knows what they're talking about. Well, right. And on top of that, even if they're not self-professed, but rather have the right letters behind their name, meaning USPTA or PTR, we found out on this podcast about a year and a half ago that those organizations don't even test on the things that coaches need to know to develop a junior player. Correct. That's that's not part of the training and testing to get the certification. Correct. So, you know, when I found that out, my mind was blown. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I've been telling parents for the last eight years to make sure that you hire a certified coach, but that doesn't mean that coach has any knowledge or training on what is necessary for your child to reach his or her highest potential. Sure. Yeah. And I'll take that a step further and say another issue that we see in, in tennis is that you've got some great players, very accomplished players, who get done with their playing career and jump right into being a coach with absolutely no training and no experience in developing a player from at whatever level they're at to the level that they want to get to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet the consumer says, okay, well, this person was a very good player. So I'm going to listen to them and their advice. Uh, their coaching advice because of their playing resume, you know, and, and, and we, you know, we see all the time that those things don't translate. Having a good playing background does not translate to having a good coaching background. And, and, you know, it can, it It can can, for sure, but it also cannot. Right. Correct. You know, just like, um, you know, I was a division three player. Um, I could be a terrible coach, right? I mean, the 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 two are mutually exclusive. They're not connected. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in sports like college basketball and college football and, and, and even in some cases at the professional level, that those are not direct paths to success from a playing right. background to a coaching background. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, so that kind of opens the door, Elliot, to this next point of conversation that I'd like to have with you, which is 
what is the difference between having a kid go through a a one-on-one coaching relationship, having their private coach, and that's how they train and that's how they develop versus putting them into a group setting with, with other kids that are of similar level and similar goals. Um, is one better than the other? Is one more conducive to sticking with the sport than the other? Is one more likely to produce a high-level collegiate player than the other? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's the advice that I really want to share with people um, through the experience that that I've had um, as a coach. I mean, I I started coaching just even part-time, you know, the year after I graduated high school and was starting to play college tennis and needed a summer job. You know, that's back in 1993. And then I've been doing it ever since then at a, at a variety of, of levels. Um, and, and here's, here's what I've found. So we've always prescribed here at, at KC United Tennis to a system that's, we, we call it the LTC system, which is learn, train, and compete. And so the learning is going to happen in a lesson with a coach where it's almost like a study guide of what you need to be focusing on for the time between, you know, that lesson and the next one. And then the train part of it is take what you learned from your coach in that one-on-one or two-on-one situation and go and train what it is that, that you're working on. And then the last part of it is take what you've trained and go test it in competition, whether that's, you know, practice competition or match competition. So, so that's the way that, that we've always looked at the development process kind of at a, you know, 10,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. So the, the pitfalls to that are that when you go from the learn time with the coach, which is a great time. It's, it's where you develop rapport and, and you, you know, you build a lot of those um, mindset um, portions of this process where the kid begins to believe in themselves. They have a clear path. They learn to concentrate better. Um, they become inspired, you know, whatnot. But to go from, from that stage to the train and compete stage is where I think people have a tendency to, whether it's the player, but I think it's mostly the parent, kind of get sucked into what seems like a better plan. And then they're sold on that plan by a coach who really, I think, is just from a standpoint, if, if I were the coach and I was, and I was promoting this, this uh, way of doing things, which is, hey, you need to be with me one-on-one all the time because that's how things are going to get done. And, and I think that we're seeing a growing number of that, you know, growing number of coaches and professionals through, you know, their online promotions that are saying that's the way to go. And I think the, it's very easy to get sucked into that um, because of a couple of things. One, that's a very protected environment. 
and it's very easy for the parent and the kid, mainly the parent because they're paying the bill, to control that environment. And in controlling that environment, they're protecting the kid, which every parent wants to protect their kid. So they're protecting their kid from failure or from, um, you know, what might look like their kid is not getting all of the attention that they deserve. And so I think what happens then is they go into a more of a personal private situation, a very controlled environment, and they lose the ability to really do what you need to do in tennis matches and as a person as a whole to be successful in the long run. You know, so I go back to the point that you made about how tennis is where you learn all of these skills that are going to help you out there in the world. I tell kids and their parents all the time, for the most part, you're going to be done with your tennis career at 21 or 22 years old. And you have another 70 years of your life, hopefully, where you're going to live as a regular person. And the (laughs) skills that you learn within this tennis process are going to arm you with the skills to be successful in those 70 years. And so to me, that's where the passion lies for me as a coach and also for everybody that works here for me is that this is really a life training environment. It's not really a tennis training environment. We just use tennis as the vehicle to teach those things. But when you pull that player into a situation where you're going to control every step of the pathway and you're going to protect the kid from all of those failures that they're going to learn in the sport, then you basically have just, you've really done them a disservice. But there are coaches who will say, yes, that's the right way to go because this is how we're going to optimize this player's, you know, ability level. Well, and if you look at, for example, a Coco Golf, okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's kind of the environment she came up. I mean, her dad coached her and she's, you know, the kid's 16 years old now. And I mean, she's had a private coach for how many years? I don't know the answer to that. Right. But, I think but, this is an... I think this is another mistake that we all have a tendency to make is we look at an example and I always, I always say that to be a high level professional tennis player, especially someone like Coco Goff, who is such an outlier and to use that as the example, I think is, I think is a real slippery throat slope. And I think it's a mistake. I agree with you a hundred percent, but that's the pushback that I hear. You right. know, my kid right. wants to be number one in the world in right. order for her or him to be number one in the world. This is what we have to do because this is what, you know, name the player did. And right. the chances of a child becoming number one in the world are so slim But how do you tell a family, I'm sorry, your kid is not going to be that one outlier? You, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. 
Right. So, so I think that, that what I tell those people is that the pathway and the progression to being a professional tennis player, not just number one in the world, but at some level that you can make a living at, the pathway to that is very, very obvious. Okay. So whether Coco Goff was trained individually or was trained in a group environment would have no bearing on whether or not she is where she is. I'm not saying that she shouldn't have a private coach every day. I would be totally fine with any player spending as much one-on-one time with a coach as they see fit. What I'm saying is that don't replace the group environment with the private time. Use the private time to augment what you're doing with the group time. Okay, so it's it's not one or the other. I love private time. I spend, you know, 20 hours a week one-on-one with kids, and that time is very special, and it's very, very important. And I've had players that I've worked with every single day, four or five days a week, and the player leaves that hour with me and walks over to the other side of the club and jumps into the group. So out of that whole 81 kids, and the 51 that, that played Division One or that could play Division One that I've coached or that we've coached here since 2008, every single one of those kids, when they were at their most successful level, were playing in the group environment. Is there so, an ideal percentage? Um, that's a great question. Well, I look at it like this. Number one, There's more bang for your buck if you're going to play in a group situation. Some people don't care about that, but, but, but it is. Um, So I look at it like if you, uh, if money were not an option, my answer to you would be three to one. So three to the group uh, to one to the um, private. If, if you're looking at, um, a budget, I would say the amount is somewhere in a range of probably six or eight to one in terms of, um, you know, hours or, or just, you know, breaking it down into a fractional amount of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, where does the competition piece fit into that? How many hours of learning and training need to happen prior to competition? Or can you put a number to that? Because that sure I would don't make think you... <laughs> if we could tell people yeah. that, yeah. We, would, we could make a million bucks, Elliot. Well, I really think so. I'll tell you this. I think the ideal number to uh, of time in a week to be spending on training, if you want to try to be as good as you can be, and everyone's different, if you're going to try to maximize your time, and it, whether you're homeschooling or whether you're going to school, that number is about 20 hours a week. So that's taking into consideration your gym time, your match play time, the training, the lessons, it's about 20 hours a week, maybe 22. But if you're doing that and you're excelling in school, you're very, very busy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, about the tournaments, one point that I think is really important that parents understand is that the most successful players that we've had in terms of whether they've improved at the fastest pace or they've achieved the most in junior tennis and on into college, those are the players that do everything they can to have a coach with them at a junior tournament. And there's a lot of coaches that don't travel to the tournaments. And that's part of the reason why I still travel to tournaments because of the importance of that in the entire process. I cannot accurately coach a kid if I don't see them compete on a fairly regular basis. It might only have to be a couple of times a quarter, but it's very, very important. And the reason for that is because kids are very um, willing to listen at tournaments, much more willing to listen there than they are at home. And they're also, they also need to have a professional point out to them the failures that occurred and what the learning opportunity there is from those failures. I think if it's just a parent there, I think a lot of the emotion gets involved and there's not as much learning and there's not as much perspective. So again, I'm not just saying this, I'm telling everybody that this is the track record of the players that we have had that have been the most successful. They have invested more in the coaching at the tournaments. And I will be the first to say to any of my clients, take less private lessons from me and use that money to have a coach at the tournament. Interesting. So, so I'm I, not against the one-on-one is what I'm saying. I'm mm-hmm. totally for the one-on-one. What I'm against is taking the kid out of a group environment and putting them in the one-on-one. So you, so let's go to this, let's go to this um, point. So you brought up the Coco Goff, right? Yeah. But, but I can back up that the group situation over the course of time, since at least I was playing junior tennis, which was back in the, in the early nineties, all the way through this whole time that I've had as a player. And then as a coach, most of the examples of great players whether they're world-class pros or really good college players have been developed in group situations, really pressure cooker environments that really draw the best out of those kids. And a lot of times it gets ugly. It gets really ugly, but the players that hang in there and the parents that can stick it out and not get emotional, those players are the battle hardened best competitors out of all of them. You know, so we can go back to the Nick Bolateri days when he was really in control and when he had started that program. Everybody's got all kinds of opinions about Nick Bolateri, and I do too. But I'm going to give that man a lot of credit for putting players into a pressure cooker environment, and those players emerged as very, very good competitors. You know, whether it was the, you know, the Sharapova days those girls that were there, there was a group of girls, you know, whether it's Sharapova, Vitasova, I I can't think of all the names that, you know, they're in a group and they're battling every day. Now, as they got closer to being professionals, they began to gravitate away from each other into their own camps. But when they're, when they were forming that, you know, that 
competitiveness and that drive, they were in that environment. You could say the Spaniards, whether it was, you know, Carlos Moya, Alex Carecha, I don't know if people know these names, and a very, very young Rafael Nadal looking up to those guys, they were all battling each other. They're, yeah. they're, you know, there's the, you know, the Australians, the Woodies, the, you know, they're, you know, every country, and this is just at the pro level, every country that kind of has their heyday, it comes and goes. But when they have their heyday, they have a core group of players that have battled each other over and over again, all through the juniors. Yeah. And I mean, we even see that right now in the States, right? We've got this group sure. of 21, 22, 23 year olds that have been pushing and pushing and pushing one another. Sure. And, you know, one will rise to the top and then, you know, somebody will put up a good fight and push them down and that, you know, it just, they keep switching places, but it's mm-hmm. really fun to watch that. I love that. And I feel like when I was coming up and I'm older than you are, um, it was the same story. You know, I came up, I'm the same age as Tracy Austin and Pam Shriver and um, Andrea Yeager and, uh, you know, that whole crew. So I, I wasn't at their level, not even close, but I certainly looked up to them and watched what they were doing. Yeah. And, and I think that th- that is part of why we are having success at the pro level now as a country is because of that shift that's been made. You know, the, the USTA has done a better job in the last six or seven years of bringing the best players together and having them battle each other, not just train, not just, you know, kind of come and go, but, but to actually battle each other and to fight for wild cards and, and what have you. And I think that, you know, that's actually created camaraderie amongst those players. And that's another advantage to the group environment that I think really gets overlooked by parents. You know, somebody told me uh, a long time ago that the best way to develop a good junior tennis player is just keep them coming back every day. And I think one of those things that gets that kid out of bed early or gets them to the club on a, on a Saturday and gets them playing that practice match or coming to the clinic or taking a lesson is being part of a community and coming where your friends are and really having fun playing tennis. And I think parents have a tendency to lose sight of the fact that this is a sport. This is a game. It's supposed to be fun. Now your kids gotten really good at this game, but that's not any different than, you know, playing ping pong or, or shooting pool. It's just that you've gotten really good at tennis, but at the end of the day, that kid wants to have fun. Yeah, but the difference between getting good at ping pong and getting good at tennis is a massive cost factor. Massive. Right. And that's, I think, that has impacted the parents more than anything because it's such a tremendous financial obligation and commitment and such a tremendous time obligation and commitment and that was not the case when you and I were coming up. Correct. Okay. So, so let me ask you this, Lisa, then 
And I totally agree with you. So if you, just like a parent would do, is going to invest money in the stock market in, in some way, okay? So you have an IRA or whatnot, and you're going to choose to buy a mutual fund. What are you going to buy that mutual fund or why are you going to buy that mutual fund? I'm, I'm looking at performance. Yeah. Right. You're looking and at long-term and, performance. Yeah. Right? And risk. Yes. Okay. So you're going to purchase a, a tried and true mutual fund that you feel like over the course of time is going to perform well. Right. And you're going to invest a lot of money in that. Okay. So, if we're if we're looking at this from a financial standpoint, why not apply that same rationale to the junior development process as opposed to what a lot of people do, which is they're just going to strike out on their own path and choose some random stock that, you know, happens to be doing well for the last 10 months where I'm going. So yeah. I think I agree with you, but I think the emotion tends to get involved when you're dealing with your kid much more than it does when you're investing in, you know, your stock portfolio. Right. Okay. And, and so, so to take that a step further, you know, when you look at what you're going to get from the different environments that you can put your kid in, you know, I personally, as a put my dad hat on, I want my kid to learn from their failures as much as possible. And I want to give them every opportunity that I can. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to protect them from the failure that they're going to learn by playing a sport because that's a safe failure. I don't want them to not be armed with the ability, you know, to deal with uh, the challenges that they're going to deal with as an adult, you know, whether it's, you know, pressure at work, you know, learn to take responsibility for yourself, independence, accountability, deal with, you know, chaotic changing environments, you know, all of those things. When, when you remove a player from a group environment, you, you know, create red carpet treatment, you create redundancy. There's very little pressure. There's very little social interaction. There's isolation. You know, there's, there's all of these things that really, for, for most people, are not realities of being an adult. And, and so I think to be a good tennis parent, you have to put your kid in an environment that's going to be very, very challenging. But I go back to what I said before, very fun, too. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think a fun, challenging environment is where you're going to get the healthiest, best competitor and person when they leave your house and go off, you know, to college and become an adult. And, and, and you know, for every one-on-one situation, I'm going to give you 500 examples of, you know, environments, not just mine at, at K-Cut, but, you know, whether it was the early years, not, not so much now, but the early years at Boletari's you know, Jeff and Brian Smith in, in Indianapolis. These are, you know, people I think you all know, Dave, Dave Licker in the Dallas area, College Park, Maryland, 
Tucker Tennis in, in Tulsa, way back when Harry Hopman, Rusty Miller in Southern California, Mark Bapp in Chicago. I mean, there are all these examples. These are guys, those guys that I listed are the people that I would see at tournaments, at national tournaments, every time. I would see the hotshot young coach right off the tour for one or two years, and they walk around like they're the bee's knees, and then they're gone. But those guys are always there. And I think that that speaks to, you know, like I said, I mean, that's a long-term mutual fund investment. And I think that the way that, that, again, bringing it back to social media, the way that this has changed is it's way too easy to profess that something else is better as opposed to looking at, well, what's the track record? Right. And I think, I mean, as a parent, you know, trying to find the best coaching situation for their developing player, looking at track record, as you suggest, Elliot, is really what matters. Looking at track record and then backing that up by talking with other parents that have had their children in that program and hearing from the parents what their experience is or was and making a determination then if that feels like it could be the right fit for your family and your child. Do you agree with that? Totally agree. And I think sometimes finding that information is still difficult. I I think it's hard, even with everything that we have online, I think it's very hard to kind of sift through the smoke and mirrors sometimes and to actually see, um, you know, not like, well, what's the flavor of the month is, you know, is this guy over here coaching, you know, one or two good kids, but, but what's their track record over time? You know, what's the health of these players that have been through the program? It's the same advice that I give to parents when they get into the college tennis process and they're going through the recruiting process, you know, just like you said, go to past players that have played in that program for that coach, you know, look at the experience that those players have, you know, it's, it's, it's the same principles, but it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to, to really find that and to, and to get accurate information. And, and, and I hate to say this for young coaches that are doing a really good job, but I think that coaches that have been in this business for a long time and continue to, to develop good players, I think they have an advantage and that the young guys that really want to cut their teeth just need to get out there and put the player first and do the very best genuine job that they can. And over the course of time, I mean, it took me a good 10 years before I could say, okay, I've really become an expert at this. It wasn't something that I got out of college for two years, coached a little college tennis, and all of a sudden, you know, I know everything that I'm talking about. So I think that's another challenge that parents have to deal with today is, well, how do I really know that, you know, you know, this coach is giving me good advice? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a challenge. And, you know, one of the things I have been kind of preaching for since I started Parenting Aces is this whole notion of the importance of having mentors. And 
You know, if you have a kid who relates better to a young coach, that's great. But that young coach should be consulting with somebody more experienced, should have somebody they can go to for advice to bounce ideas off of. Not necessarily that they have to be working for a more experienced coach, but at least have somebody that they trust that can talk them through potential conflicts or, you know, issues that may come up that they just don't have the experience to deal with yet. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and that so often doesn't happen, you know, and, 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 and I think the responsibility that those coaches have, especially the young coaches that they have to guide that player and to teach those, those players, that player, good ethics, Um, you know, right from wrong, the do's and don'ts and, and just how to be proud of what you do, what your brand is as a player and as a person. I think that, that many of those young coaches, which is why they need that mentor, like you said, they don't recognize the responsibility that's there. You know, at the end of the day, that, that player and parent, those parents, they may skip town or, you know, they may decide that they're not interested in working with that coach anymore, but that coach really, you know, has done the player a disservice if the advice that they're giving them or the things that they're teaching them or the way that they're behaving um, is not, is not sound advice or is bad behavior or, you know, or, or whatnot. So I think that, we're having a, a you know a time in in our lives where again going back to social media where you know it's very very easy to look at some videos or to you know talk to a coach and the coach really acts like they know what they're doing and you know before you know it you've kind of gotten sucked into a situation that really isn't what's best for the kid yeah Yeah, agreed. And it doesn't mean that a young coach can't eventually learn all that stuff. And and hopefully they do, right? But I can tell you from experience that, you know, sometimes the young coaches, they mean well. I don't think, you know, for the majority of them, they're not intentionally giving bad advice or you know, setting a a bad example for your child, they just don't have the life experience and the coaching experience yet to know better. And I mean, I've, I've seen it happen a million times. It's happened, you know, in our family. So I get it, but the onus always is on the parents to ensure that their child is getting the best possible coaching available and, you know, listen, we know that not everybody lives in a place with access to coaches like you, Elliot McDermott, but, (sighs) but there are great coaches available via email, via FaceTime, via whatever, you know, we have so much, so much technology now that even if you can't find someone local, you can certainly supplement what you've got locally with something more experienced. For for sure. And, and you're right. You bring up a really good point that um, it's really nice to be able to live in Kansas city and to 
have a place that you can go and, you know, have a really great wide variety of, of players and not everybody can do that for sure. Um, I guess I'm, I guess I'm looking at it more from a standpoint of if you have players around you, whether they're better than you, as good as you, or not as good as you, and you can practice with them, that's what you should do. And you should do it as much as possible because you're going to encounter all of those situations when you're in a tournament, right? So it's about a third of the time you're going to have to beat someone that you really should beat. You're going to try to beat somebody that it could go either way. And then you're going to try to beat somebody that's a level better than you. And you should be reflecting that in the way that you set up your practice environment. And you should be under the gun to beat those kids that you should beat and so on and so forth. So no matter what program is in your area or you have access to or don't have access to, I think it's really important for parents to take a look at that and say, okay, who's my kid practicing with? Is my kid getting a lot of different variety, whether it's in tournament play or in practice play or in, you know, a clinic environment or what have you, where they're getting a lot of different looks? as many as they can get mm-hmm. because all the time, I'm sure you've had other guests on the show, but where who've said that all the time I have a parent that, that the parents that come to me and say, well, my kid needs to be playing people that are better than them. Right. And, and my, you know, what my response is, okay. The problem is, is that then the person that you're playing is coming to me and saying the same thing because yeah. they're playing a down match. I mean, if everybody was playing up matches, nobody would ever play anybody. Right. right. And who does and who does number one <laughs> practice with? Right. Right. I mean, and and sometimes number one isn't good enough. I mean, I, I always find that interesting too. You know, when when a player has a lot of success, it's oftentimes at that point where they start looking around and go, Well now what? You know, as opposed to a high five and, and, you know, being really proud of what they've accomplished, they, they don't necessarily do that. And they don't look at an opportunity to say, okay, well, I've really accomplished some things here. What can I do is give back to be a good mentor to the, that next group coming up. Right. Right. And, and I think and- when you do, when you put a kid in an isolation experience, one-on-one too much with a coach, I think you missed that dynamic as well. Yeah, and it's it's developing that mindset of giving back, right? Mm-hmm. Which hopefully we all want our children to have. Or being a good leader. I mean, I would I would love for my kids to grow up and be good leaders. And Absolutely. becoming a good leader, I will tell you now in this environment that I'm in, we have 17 coaches in this building that look at me for leadership it's a very, very difficult place to stand. And to be able to teach leadership to young people, I think is a huge opportunity. And one that parents sometimes don't realize how difficult that is to do. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of the time, it's simply by modeling, right? 
It's not even that you're actively teaching other than modeling the behavior that you're hoping the, the child picks up on. So, I mean, they're just, oh God, parenting is so hard. And parenting an elite athlete just adds another level of difficulty to the equation. And it's not just an elite athlete. It's, it's a, an elite student, an elite artist, whatever your child is pursuing in their life. You know, it just adds a level of challenge to an already so difficult job of raising human beings to be productive members of society and, you know, make a positive mark in the world. So, I mean, kudos to everybody out there on the path and kudos to the coaches who recognize this challenge and are willing to be out there day after day after day being a positive influence over our children, taking them under their wing. And, you know, people like you, Elliot, really just make the world a better place. So thank you for everything that you're doing to not only create great tennis players, but to create great humans. Well, thanks. And and Lisa, I want to just say how appreciative I am that you have this great platform with Parenting Aces to help inform tennis parents um, I, I am so passionate about what kids learn from the sport and how they learn those life skills that, you know, getting out there and just having this conversation with you or, you know, anything that, you know, that I can put out there that, that people can take something positive from, I think, um, is, is something that I really, um, you know, value and, and, um, and I take take a lot of pride in in being able to in being able to do that. Well, I appreciate you taking time out to do this because I know how busy you are. If our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? And I'll put this in the show notes too, so don't worry about taking notes, people. Sure, I think an uh, an email would be great. You know, um, it's Elliot at opracketclub.com. Great. And we'll, we'll include that in the show notes on parentingaces.com. So don't worry, you can click and send Elliot an email and just tell him how much you appreciate his knowledge and also ask away if you have questions about either your child's current experience or, or, you know, specific questions about development or tournaments or whatever it may be. Um, Elliot has been around. He is a font of information and he is so well connected in the tennis world and can really help you regardless of where you are physically located. Um, You know, he'll know somebody nearby to, to send you to, right, Elliot? Well, thanks. Yeah. That's really nice of you to say. I'm just, uh, appreciative that we've had this time to talk and opportunity to kind of voice uh, voice my opinion on this this whole crazy junior development process. <laughs> well, thanks, and I love ch- chatting with you. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. 
Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.